producers of the show do not accept responsibility for any spectral phenomenon that may occur in the listener's own home. Enjoy, and welcome to Radio Undead. Let's act like the show has begun. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Radio Undead. We're here with another week of Talking Undead. I am Jamie, and I'm here with Jackson. Hi, guys. We would have had three Talking Undeads now, but one of my uh, my computer died, and I lost it. We lost a whole ass episode last a week, so if you're episode. wondering what happened to that double posting that was supposed to happen, uh, that's what. Also, my audio is going to be real, real bad this week, because I am in sunny Westchester County. Uh, at my parents' house, <laughs> and I forgot my microphone. Which you're in like the most haunted house that either of us have ever lived in. I am using the headset that my stepdad uses to make conference calls to his business partners. <laughs> 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 it's the best I could do on short notice because <laughs> I forgot my fucking microphone. <laughs> you know what? I realized I never asked you. Yeah. Do you understand the pun? As to why we're calling this Talking Undead. Uh, no. Okay. I realized, like, I thought of it, and it was funny to me, and it might not be to everyone, but on AMC, when they show, when, wow, when they show a new episode of The Walking Dead, there's another show after it called Talking Dead, where they just discuss the episode you just watched. Oh. And I thought if we called ourselves Talking Undead when we did this, it would be really funny. You know, I didn't watch Walking Walking Dead. I saw the first season. I've never seen Talking Dead, but I know it would make me want to kill myself. <laughs> That's just the silliest thing, dude. And you know people definitely watch that. <laughs> Do you think there's anybody who doesn't watch walking dead but they watch talking dead at least one just to like get the highlights so when they're at work tomorrow they can be like oh yeah it's someone who's like so absurdly lazy it's like the same uh the same kind of person that listens to uh like conservative talk radio where you don't want to hear the news and try to understand it you just want to be told what to what to understand so they listen to talking dead and they're like okay these are the things i should tell my coworkers tomorrow I, I wonder you just watch that and like take notes and then then you can go into any social situation and talk way too much about that whatever fucking episode um anyway what do we talk what are we talking about actually why don't you talk a little bit about what uh we lost from last week all right yeah <laughs> So that was a fucking bummer. It was a fun episode too. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed recording it. Um, were you in finals week last week? Yes, yes, I was. Midterms. All right. So my finals, Jamie's midterms. We were both very busy, but we found the time. We fucking did it to write, to record an episode about medieval serial killers, and it was really brutal and really fun. So we're going to go over a few of them because, I mean, we don't have to go through the whole thing, but I think we can hit the, hit the, highlights. Hit the highlights, you know? Yeah. Should we should we start with that? Do you want to talk a little bit about the Peters, say? Uh, yeah, I mean, the Peter, uh, uh, I forget his last name, Peter, Peter Wolf, <laughs> Peter the Werewolf. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that. Peter Stump. 
there was a lot of Peters in this, and a lot of Gills actually, or just two Gills and two Peters. But uh, what was really funny was actually we obviously didn't post this episode because it got lost. But um, shortly after we recorded it, a, uh, a friendly man messaged us or emailed us, um, pointing us towards this other vampire who's also named Peter. Did you read about him? No, I didn't. Dude, we're gonna have to bring him up at some point. He is he is truly brutal, but. We can get to that later, or uh, on the actual show if we wanted to. If we don't include that vampire, then the guy who sent us the email is going to cast a charm on us, and our dicks are going to fall off. Just about. Or dick flies. That's what I think that's what we decided. Never-ending cloud of flies just around your dick. <laughs> Any social situation you walk into, <laughs> there are flies around your dick like a cow turd out in a field. It's like a... What's that guy from the Peanuts? Linus. Yeah, it's like an R-rated Peanuts. Minus. Yeah. Um, Let's just get a dirty dick. <laughs> that would honestly be so inhibiting, though. That'd be a horrible curse to have. No, if you had a dirty dick, then, like, if you're putting it in someone, they would also get sick. Yeah. You'd it's infect not like, them. It's not like condoms save you at that point, either, because there are fucking flies all around it. Yeah, no, dick too dirty. <laughs> all right, Peter Stump. Let's talk about Peter Stump. Let's do it. Um, all right, so this guy... Uh, was a pretty legit fucking werewolf, which was really interesting. Um, he was actually, during my search for medieval serial killers, he was one of the more interesting I found because of how much documentation there was on him. There was a 16-page pamphlet published in London in 1590, uh, which was, uh, of which now two copies exist, one in the British Museum and one in the Lambeth Library which was rediscovered by occultist Montague Summers in 1920. It describes Stump's life and alleged crimes and the trial. And really quick side note on Montague Summers, uh, he was good buddies with Aleister Crowley. Ooh, our favorite. That's really it. Yeah. Yeah. But Montague was a, uh, he believed that witchcraft was intrinsically tied to Catholicism and actually uh, was very pro-hunting witches. So I'm not really sure how that relationship worked out. Probably not well. Nobody had a good relationship with Aleister Crowley in general. I don't know much about him, honestly. I should know more than I do. But from what I've heard... <laughs> he was basically that weird guy that walks into any social situation and is just like, Hey, we should take our clothes off. And you should do a line off my dick. <laughs> the first time I did that, I was 15. Alright, anyway. Back to Stump. <laughs> So, Stump murdered and cannibalized 18 women and children in a village that was already in the throes of the sewer war between Protestants and Catholics. In addition, he slaughtered and drank the blood of an unknown number of farm animals. He went as far as murdering his own son and eating his brain. He was not starving, he just did that. He confessed under severe torture to making a deal with the devil in which he was given a belt that would turn him into what we call a werewolf. No belt was found at the scene. We do need to take the story with a bit... Of, uh, with a grain of salt because it was... Because it involves werewolves. It involves werewolves and a lot of torture. Um, his death was fucking brutal. We sort of talked about this the first time around, how they really believed in an eye for an eye at the time. Even though I'm pretty sure that was like explicitly contradicted in the Bible, but they don't, they don't like that too much. 
<laughs> Catholics and Protestants hate the fucking Bible. <laughs> Honestly, they kind of do, though. <laughs> I know. They don't. <laughs> nothing. They, they literally openly despise what's actually in the Bible. Uh, so, with that said, their uh, very biblical response to these horrible crimes he committed uh, was having him stretched on the wheel until his limbs broke. While, uh, while they did this, he had flesh torn from 10 different parts of his body with hot pincers. When they were done, they chopped off his arms and legs, chopped off his head, and stuck it on a pole as a warning to future offenders. Which is hilarious, because future offenders. <laughs> of lycanthropy. Yeah. Of, you know... The disease which calls werewolfism. I like, <laughs> I like the logic that, uh, you know, someone would be prepared to murder and cannibalize many women and children and then would see a head on a stick and be like "Ooh, fuck that <laughs> <laughs> i might end up like that guy if anything they would just see see it and be like "Ooh, i'm in the right place <laughs> yeah exactly did you ever say you have a werewolf story i i don't have a werewolf story no i'm gonna be talking about since i am in westchester right now i'm gonna talk about the hudson valley now the hudson valley is a region of new york uh, outside the city, I didn't look up exactly where it stretches from, but it encompasses uh, Rockland County and Westchester County, Dutchess County, Putnam Valley, Putnam County. Sorry, um, it's basically it's basically most of the places in New York that you've heard of that aren't the city. Uh, it's also where Jackson and I grew up, so I thought it would be fun to do a few stories about that. So I'll give you uh, a quick little choice i've got three murders and two sort of paranormal things which do you want to hear first i know what i want to end with oh is one of the murders our teacher no holy shit that would have been such a good one remember that oh yeah oh my god one of our teachers was murdered by her husband it was horrible in the car on a bridge yeah holy shit yeah dude i forgot about that until right now (laughs) <laughs> I was. We were in like third grade when that happened. I didn't even understand what was going on. Yeah, I don't think we've ever talked about that with each other. No, I actually don't think we did. <laughs> but it was a pretty big deal at the time. Yeah, she got shot in the head. That's, for some reason I thought her head got chopped off. And that's so much better. I mean, that's still really awful. But that's so much better. Yeah. Holy shit, I forgot about that. Ah, yeah, poor lady. Poor woman. Well... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with the murders, and then I will move on to the paranormal stuff. So, the first thing I'm going to talk about is the Germond family homicide. This is one of the Hudson Valley's largest murders, and it's also still unsolved, which I think is what drew me to it. So, the day after Thanksgiving 1930, the Borden Company of Dutchess County, New York, sent one of its workers to check out the local German dairy farm to supply them with milk, as they had missed their shipments for a few days. The employee, a man by the name of Millard Coons, arrived at the dairy farm around 9 in the morning to find that the farm and its animals were unattended. What he found next would shock the entire state of New York. All four members of the German family were found stabbed to death on their dairy farm, with investigators putting their time of death on the night of Thanksgiving. Hustis Germond and his young son Raymond were found stabbed to death in the family's wagon shed, the bodies laying in a giant puddle of their own blood. Mabel and Bernice Germond, Hustis's wife and daughter, were found next to the family's kitchen, 
Both of them were also viciously stabbed to death, with 17-year-old Bernice's body being found under the kitchen table as if she had tried to crawl away. There's, there's a lot of not, like, there's not very funny jokes to make about, you know, family Thanksgiving. <laughs> like, uh, I'm surprised my family Thanksgiving hasn't ended this way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Looks like the turkey wasn't that good. <laughs> yeah, just like that. Um, Jesus Christ, though, that is really brutal. I mean, damn my wife. That's what. Where... <laughs> I mean, what are the chances though that there's just like there was another family member at Thanksgiving who freaked out? Were there any leads on this story that you were aware of? There are some leads, but none of them are very strong. So let me tell you this. Not long after Coons had found the bodies, the once quiet dairy farm was crawling with investigators looking for any sign of the perpetrator's identity. The Dutchess County Sheriff's and New York State Police both went to work attempting to compile any evidence from a crime scene that, while gruesome, shed little light on whoever could have done something so heinous to a family who had reportedly no enemies. The only strong piece of evidence that was found was a butcher knife that didn't belong to the family. A butcher knife very clearly covered in their blood, not from their knife block, and had no fingerprints on it. That's fucking crazy. While the police were unable to identify who had brought this knife to the home, they were able to find who sold it. The guy clearly recognized the knife, but when he tried to remember who he sold it to, his memory was hazy. The next piece of evidence was found a mile down the road from the German family farm. Hustis's wallet was abandoned on the side of the street, and bank records show that he had taken out $150 that day. However, wallet was empty when it was found. So Damn, dude, do you think it was a Manson-type killing, where there was just a random, you know, someone walked in, killed everybody, and left? Uh, it very well could be. There's really not much to go off of. If money was missing, like, maybe it could have been some sort of financial thing. Uh, maybe it was a farmer's feud. Apparently that happens a lot where farmers will argue over territory and like who they, who, if they farm (laughs) the same things, they'll argue over who they sell their produce to or whatever. I don't know. There's, I guess there's a whole farmer culture you and I are not aware of Jackson. And sometimes it gets people killed. Yeah. That's actually really interesting to think about. We're kind of bougie. Oh. Kinda, a little bit. You should see the yeah. sweatshirt I'm wearing right now. It's made out of terry cloth, <laughs> but it only costs ten dollars. Uh, so that those murders occurred in 1930, and it wasn't until 1933 that somebody was finally uh, suspected, or not charged, just suspected of murdering the German family. Oh, this was some time ago. This, yeah, this was some time ago. Okay, you know, I was like. Uh... I was thinking during this about how the Manson family got caught because it was like, you know, pretty similarly brutal and random. And uh, then remembered that uh, they washed their knives off in the hose on the fucking land. I didn't know that. Yeah, they they said hi to the neighbors. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Isn't that scary? (laughs) That's so fucking horrifying. Yeah, like they just like uh, the neighbors saw them washing off their hands and, and weapons. It's pretty morbid, but also they're fucking idiots, and that's why they got caught. Uh, anyway, in 1933, three years after the German family murders, uh, a man named Arthur Curry, which is also, I'm pretty sure, 
Aquaman's alter ego, um, <laughs> was arrested under suspicion of murdering the German family. Now, he lived right next door, had a history of assaulting folks, um, and went over earlier that day to argue with Eustace about money. Okay. And then he came in and was like, fuck it, I'm going to murder the entire family. Well, it's very uh, possible he left his home in the morning to go argue with Eustace and then came back at 6.30 at night completely empty-handed. Um, it very well could be he murdered them and then went home, or he went home and murdered them later that night, because we just know they died sometime that night. Um, so after the arrest of Arthur Curry, uh, and then there was no strong enough evidence to keep him in jail, he was released. Nobody thought about this case again until the 1960s, when a man who lived in Connecticut... Uh, basically bragged to his wife about how he committed this murder and she called somebody called the police in Connecticut I assume and that is actually just where it ends a man said that he might have committed this murder he bragged about it to his wife and she reported him but there's nothing they can do because it's not illegal to say you murdered somebody imagine if like god damn dude your husband tells a tells you that he killed someone you go to the police you're like i have a scary husband and he just confessed to this quadruple homicide and they're like all right and that is where the case of the german family murders tragically ends now that's the only unsolved murder i'm gonna talk about today um because while i love an unsolved i know that they leave you with a bad taste in your mouth because you want to know that that good good ending so let's move on to something a bit more final. Yeah. Let's talk about the last hanging to ever happen in New York State. Oscar F. Beckwith has an extremely spotty past. Nobody knows exactly where his family came from. Nobody knows exactly when they came to this country. Things were not kept. Uh, this He died in 1888. He was believed to be born sometime in the 18. Uh, tens, I guess you would say that. Records weren't fantastic at the time. If anything, we were just starting to keep records of who was immigrating to this country. So nobody's exactly sure where this guy came from. What we know of Beckwith's past is from his attorney, Levi Longley, who pretty much just says his life was one of estrangement, poverty, and often insanity. Beckwith fit the pattern by first abandoning a wife and young daughter in western Massachusetts. Hey, we, we've lived there at a certain point of time. Oh, yeah. Uh, Miserable he, fucking place. It really be. fucking is. If it you is like horrible. cows, go there. Cows <laughs> in negative 15 degree weather. If you like anything aside from cows, go literally anywhere fucking else. <laughs> anyway. Our earliest knowledge of Beckwith is that he left his wife and daughter in western Massachusetts and walked to Illinois to become a rich man. And I just said Illinois. It's Illinois. He walked from Massachusetts to Illinois. With the duty of becoming a rich man? He thought he could just go there and become rich. This guy... This guy sort of has a delusion that repeats itself once again, that he just thinks he knows where riches are. Like, the actual reason he winds up in New York is because he just imagines there's some gold in the Hudson Valley. Which, like, maybe there is. Maybe there was. 
I don't actually know because I don't really give a shit. But he just <laughs> he just thinks he knows where gold is, and that drives his entire life. I mean, it's really similar to like, uh, you know, it's like all the acting students here are like planning to move to New York. <laughs> just like all the acting students in New York are planning to move to LA because that's where success is. So we don't exactly know what he did in Illinois. All we know is that he ended up in New York. And um, this is unsubstantiated, and it will make more sense when I get further into the article. But some people believe that he lived uh, during that walk from Massachusetts to Illinois by eating Native American women. Nobody can say whether or not he actually did it, but it is believed that that's exactly what he did. Okay. That's a big jump. I look forward to hearing some more. (laughs) Uh, Why do I talk about him now? Great question. Around, this happened in 1861 in Austerlitz, New York, which apparently is a place that we we are not very far from. Yeah, I've never heard Um, of that shit. Oscar Beckworth appeared at the door of a farmer and said, Hi, you know that old man who's been staying with you? whose last name is Vanderkoop. I believe I got that right. Vandercook. Um, shows up at this farm and says, Hi, you know the old man that you've been renting a room to named Vandercook? Uh, first name unimportant. That guy's not going to be back uh, for two months. In two months, he will be home, and he wanted me to tell you that. And then he ran away from this farmhouse. So... <laughs> the farmer decided that was pretty fucking weird and walked out to the woods to find Oscar Beckworth, who obviously lived in the fucking woods. <laughs> As he approached Beckworth's cabin, he noticed smoke and a very strange smell. He couldn't describe it. All he said is that it smelled like death and it was the blackest smoke he had ever seen. So he approaches the cabin and just, instead of knocking, apparently just opened the door and peeked in. And that's where he found Oscar Beckworth kneeled in front of a stove with burned pieces of flesh all over the room. Basically, there were arms and legs all cut up. Well, you know, about four of them, two each. Um, (laughs) That's not funny, sorry. (laughs) The way I said it was kind of funny. (laughs) The way you said it was funny, it's just not a funny topic. (laughs) His, um, the limbs of this Vandercook were strewn about his uh there were pieces of skin cut to what were referred to as stove sized um there is a basket of there was a basket hanging down from the ceiling and placed in that basket were all the innards and also strewn around were these burnt pieces of flesh oh god so the farmer sees that and obviously fucking books it he just leaves which is a good call that's that's a horror yeah. movie scene but he made the right call he just got the fuck out of there and he got the police police show up a few more hours later literally everything is gone every inch of what he had seen is gone Jesus. except for a little bit of flesh in the stove which is why the cops were now looking for oscar f beckworth under suspicion of cannibalism also i've been saying beckworth it's beckwith You want to guess how long it took them to find Beckwith? 14 years. A little bit less than that. It took them six years. 
the only way that they found him is, remember that daughter he had abandoned in Western Massachusetts? Yes. He decided to start writing her letters again. And of course, the whole, at least the whole Northeast had heard of Beckwith's crimes. Um, And so she reported this to her local police department, wherever that was in Western Massachusetts. And they found out that his letters were coming from Canada. So... Uh, he was extradited from Canada. Two police went in there. It's actually kind of funny. One <clears throat> policeman went to Ontario to find him and brought along a farmer that would be able to identify this guy. Okay. And the guy who was identify who was going to be doing the identifying agreed to come along because there was a reward out to find Beckwith. Only the cop took the reward. Oh. Yeah, he got the whole That's thing. That's some bullshit. He got um, $650 for that, which is about $13,000 now. Are, are you saying that, that a cop was a It's dick? against the law, Jack, son. He, was, he wasn't... You know nice. the law and the police, they protect. <laughs> they, they protect from they protect. the sex they offenders. <laughs> what a piece of shit. It's so mean. Yeah. And, well, they got him, they got Beckwith, and they brought him back to New York. Uh, Beckwith confessed to the murder, but said he never ate anything he was burning those body parts to burn them he was trying to turn them into ash and so the real crime here is the crime of the media because no matter what no matter how much he fought it and it's probably pretty obvious that he didn't eat anything because the whole body was found there charred and cut up but still the whole body the media is still calling this guy a cannibal now he wasn't a cannibal he was a murderer, yeah, but he wasn't a cannibal. <laughs> Just a regular old murderer. You know, the thing is though, like if you're gonna if you're gonna murder someone, cannibalizing them is the second worst thing you've done to them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Cannibalism is not the worst crime here if it took place. If you're gonna be a murderer and you eat them, at least you're at least you're using all the parts, you know? Yeah. The whole buffalo. The whole buffalo. I, I specifically wasn't going to reference Native Americans. <laughs> I almost said... Oh, it, he might have eaten those women. I yeah. he ate those women. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but uh, it's it's really funny that they have to add something to it, though. Because it's already pretty bad. But they just wanted to be like, and also... Imagine if uh, this guy just traveled across the country eating women he would be like peewee gas peewee what's the last name you got it peewee gaskins but with cannibalism that guy did you you listen to that episode yes i did yeah dude that one was one of the worst (laughs) he was that was difficult to listen to yeah no he's a terrible terrible guy yeah that was one of the few i actually looked up the pdf of that book and uh read a chapter out of it and it's uh, it's horrid. It's really it's not even an enjoyable read. I like morbid things. It is upsetting. Yeah. What's it called again? For anyone who's listening, 
look it up. I will end this by saying, uh, Oscar F. Beckwith, murderer, but not a cannibal, was the last man to be hung publicly in New York, or to be hung at all, in 1888. He was also the oldest man ever in New York to be hung at the age of 76. Oh, that's what this story was about. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it was about about the murder, but he was the last hanging in New York. Yeah, I mean, that was the intro. It's called Final Truth, Final Truth, about Pee Wee Gaskins. I don't know how I... Yeah, I don't know how I could have forgotten that since he says, and this is the final truth, so much. And, uh, yeah, guys, if you want to have a really awful time, or if you're just you know fucking weirdo, uh, go look up the final truth, Pee Wee Gaskins, PDF. Have a nice little read. All right, well, that's Pee Wee Gaskins, the most hated man in America. Why don't we talk about the most hated woman in America? Or, as they called her, the worst woman on Earth. Yeah, Ann Coulter. Yeah, I guess she does take the record now, doesn't she? Sorry, Lizzie Halliday, but move over and make some room for Ann Coulter. (laughs) Now, if we're going to refer to uh, Lizzie, uh, what's her last name? Halliday. Lizzie Halliday. Her full title is Lizzie Halliday, the second worst woman on Earth after Ann Coulter. All right, well, born in 1859 in Ireland under the name Elizabeth Margaret McNally. Uh, She was around five years old when she emigrated to America into New York City with her family, living it up. Those, you know, probably a great time being an Irish person in New York City in the late 1800s. Probably not awful at all. I forget about that period of history when Irish people were uh, ethnic and... Yeah, they weren't white at the time. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like how we, I'm sure you've read some sort of theory text in college that say, like, uh, you know, race is a construct and all that. That's a pretty easy example to point to. (laughs) Like, remember when Irish people Mm -hmm. weren't white? (laughs) The literal whitest people on earth. (laughs) Anyway, back to Lizzie Halliday, or as she was known as first, Elizabeth Margaret McNally. Uh, what did I say? She came here when she was five years old. That would make it nineteen, or eighteen sixty-four when she <laughs> math eighteen sixty-four when she moved over here with her family. Again, not much is known about her early life, um, other than people were fucking afraid of Elizabeth. She was feared not only in her family of a bunch of drunken, abusive idiots, she was feared on the streets just as that crazy Elizabeth, basically. People were fucking terrified of this woman. She got into so many physical fights on the street and with her family. People just knew that she had a reputation, and the only thing she could do was go to Pennsylvania when she met a man named Charles Hopkins. She got a man? Yeah. She nailed herself a man, Charles Hopkins, and he got her out of the hustle and bustle of the city, and brought her to Pennsylvania. Ah, lovely Pennsylvania. That's in 1879. I've spent small periods of time in Pennsylvania. It's a pretty nice place. It's fine. She (laughs) she marries Charles Hopkins in 1879. By 1881, he's dead. Oh. Just entirely mysterious causes. Wait, a, a year later? Two years later. Lasted a whole two years. Dead from mysterious causes. 
Then a couple months later, she is married again, this time to a really wow. elderly man. So it's not much oh. of a surprise when he dies almost immediately. He was an elderly guy. It really honestly could have been natural causes and not her doing. Let me guess, did, did she get married again? McNally quickly moved on to husband number three, who came who came <laughs> in the form of Hiram Parkinson. Ah, I love Hiram Parkinson. Hiram Parkinson, whom just weeks into the marriage, disappeared without a trace. Oh. He didn't turn up dead. Nobody found him anywhere. He just disappeared off the face of the fucking earth. All right. On the one hand, I'm sensing a pattern here. On the other hand, these are all pretty plausible so far. Pretty plausible. Well, let me tell you about the fourth guy. Oh, okay. (laughs) McNally married for a fourth time when she met Civil War veteran George Smith. But months into the marriage, she tried to spark his tea with arsenic, and he lived. He drank it and lived. He was... Oh, my God. Yeah, he was fine. And by the time... Well, not fine. He definitely did some throwing up. I think he was out cold for a little while. By the time he woke up, his wife and every cent he had was gone. She's straight up just murdering and stealing all their stuff? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nobody knew where she was until she emerged a few months later in Vermont, where, guess what she did? She got married. (laughs) to a man named Charles Playstell. But this one is a little different because this time, two weeks into the marriage, she disappeared. Oh. Her husband didn't disappear. She just left. Okay. This guy, that guy must have been fucking horrible. Jesus Christ. Yeah, he must have been the worst fucking guy in the world for (laughs) fucking Lizzie Halliday to to just be like, peace. Yeah, Jesus Christ. Honestly, she she might have just like needed a place to crash for a few nights. So she got and like (laughs) it being the eighteen hundreds, you can't be a woman like couch surfing. So you just got to keep getting married. I I was gonna say it's impressive that uh, maybe not impressive, but I like that getting married is like a formal component of her of her deal. Like she has to marry them every single time. (laughs) She she can't murder unless she married. Yeah. It just really throws her off her game. (laughs) Anyway, she disappears from Vermont and then resurfaces in 1888 in Philadelphia. Uh, excuse me. That was really loud in my ears. (laughs) She resurfaced in 1888 in Philadelphia, where she befriended another Irish immigrant family named the McQuillans. And at that time, she changed her name to Maggie Hopkins. And with the money she stole from previous husbands, she set up shop. I can't find anywhere what that shop was people just say she set up shop um if i had to guess you know she's a murderer so maybe a butcher shop okay or a creepy uh creepy store that only sells wooden toys um (laughs) what kind of businesses do do murderers own (laughs) she sets up shop 1888 in philadelphia i'm still very curious to find out what that shop was but unfortunately it burned down and when I say it burned down, I mean she set fire to it. <laughs> she set fire to it for insurance money and was arrested not that long after. So she's doing her first stretch in prison. Um, when I got <laughs> when I got to this point in the article, they finally decided to mention that throughout all of this, 
every single minute of it, um, at least from her first marriage. She had a kid with her. Whoa! That's huge! What the fuck? That's... She was bringing her son around for all of this. Wow, that son must have been so fucked up. Must have seen some weird fucking shit. And in 1888, when she goes to prison for (laughs) insurance fraud, of all things, and arson, I guess, uh, he goes to juvenile detention, where he uh, beats the shit out of a couple kids, and turns out he's really just as violent as his mom. Shocking. Raised by a violent psychopath and becomes a, a violent psychopath. I mean, you know she was beating the shit out of him. Oh, yeah, for four definite. Like, he did not have an easy time. When McNally was released, she changed her name to Lizzie well, Brown and found employment as a housekeeper for an elderly widower, yeah. Paul Halliday, who resided on a farm in old. Sullivan County in upstate in New York. Sense. In the 1890s, That's she married him because fucking of course she did it's just what she fucking does apparently and finally she became lizzie halliday the woman we are talking about on may 6th 1891 mcnally burned down a passion god damn it on may 6th 1891 mcnally burned down a portion of the halliday family home on may 26th she burned down one of the large barns on the farm and drove all of her husband's yep. workhorses to the town of Newburgh, where she sold them. McNally also lashed out at Halliday's yeah. older sons and had threatened Halliday with death on several occasions. Their marriage was not the best. In 1893, McNally burned down her husband's mill while his son was inside. McNally was arrested and sent to an asylum because she was deemed insane because, obviously... However, she was not there very long. McNally made her way back to Sullivan County in August of that year, the same month Paul Halliday just happened to disappear off his farm. Neighbors and the family who witnessed McNally back on Halliday's farm at the same time as his sudden disappearance feared the worst and contacted the police. With a search warrant in hand, Sullivan County lawmen went searching the farm for Mr. Halliday, but instead they found Margaret and Sarah McQuillan. The lifeless bodies of the two Irish immigrant sisters were buried under the hay in one of the barns. Both had been shot by a 32 caliber five-shooter. The McQuillans, who had befriended McNally in Philadelphia, had been caught up in one of her throes of violence and neither had survived. So, these bodies traveled with her. She met that family in Philadelphia and their bodies were found on her farm in New York. So either they came with her alive, they came to find her, or she killed them and brought them with her. And her son, at this time, is he still with her, or is he in juvie? Um, the article wasn't really clear on that. Okay. But, like... Oh, my God. I mean, I'm just imagining... He's who I'm really stuck on, honestly, in this story. The idea that she has her son as a little accomplice, most likely, to all of this. Like, he probably was involved in some way or another... Whether it be just because he had to have known, you know? Yeah. I mean... I can't find, like, a ton on this woman at all, let alone her son, which is sad, because I would like to know more about what he saw. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I want to know if, like, he helped bury the bodies, or what his involvement was. Maybe he killed some people. Maybe. Maybe his mom was cleaning up after him, maybe he was cleaning up after her, maybe they were both uh, cleaning up after each other. (laughs) That's cute. 
Is there any note about like how roughly how old he was? Also, no note of that anywhere I saw. If uh, if anybody listening can find more on me and wants to correct me on anything, or uh, you know, just give me more information, fucking feel free to do so. I would love to be proved wrong. I think it's fair to say that as we are just starting to do these episodes, we uh, our words are not particularly sacred. <laughs> If there's... And I'll be real, I didn't do an insane amount of research. I just did the normal bound. <laughs> we just kind of enjoy doing this. It's just kind I'm of not fun. Marcus Parks. So. No, no, we are, we are definitely not Marcus Parks. We are... <laughs> Days after uh, the finding of those McQuillan sisters, a stench started drifting up from the floors of the Halliday house. When police looked there, they found the body of none other than her latest and greatest husband, Paul Halliday. Uh, he had been shot, but he too had been shot, but his body had quote unquote been horrifically tampered with whatever that may mean. That's, that's, that's all the internet's willing to give me is it was, uh, tampered with tampered with police find this body. And then they basically turn to her after like connecting her to two more murders the day before. And they're like, Margaret or what's her name at this point? Lizzie, <laughs> did you do this? And her only response was to just tear off her clothes and start speaking gibberish. That's the smartest response. That's that's all she did. Uh and while she was clear she was diagnosed uh with she was diagnosed as insane, she had already spent some time in an asylum. But the police in that moment were like, Okay, so you're you're faking it. You're just smearing your shit on the walls. Lizzie. Lizzie, please. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was determined she was completely sound of mind uh, oh. when she committed these murders. She was brought to an asylum uh, where she was kept in restraints 24-7. She refused to eat. She apparently at one point tried to cut her own throat with a piece of broken glass. Um, and of course, the entire time, the media is having a fucking field day over this people are loving this female serial killer who is going to be the first woman ever in new york to be put to death in the electric chair and that's exactly what happened to her that's the story of lizzie halliday the most hated woman in america yeah i'm upset about her son honestly i'm just stuck on that me too like i would love to learn more about whatever uh, i'm gonna make up a name for him right now kiernan halliday yeah, dude, Kiernan Halliday, like, <laughs> I want to know what his, he was like after that. He must have been fucking insane. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if there are any mysterious murders in, like, the 30 years after her death, if they could be traced back to that guy. That would be really interesting, actually, like a legacy sort of serial killer. I've never heard of that. Neither have I, but I've also never heard of a situation in which a uh, child was brought along on like a cross-country murder spree. Yeah, this true. is we've, we've listened and read a lot about serial killers, and I don't think I've heard that before. No, that is pretty new. That's pretty unique to her situation. All right, well, we talked about a lot of murder. Let me tell you about two really quick paranormal events. Jackson, have you ever heard of the Hudson Valley Triangle? Yes. This is something that was discussed on last podcast on the left. The Hudson Valley Triangle is one of the most widely reported UFO phenomenon in the history of UFOs. So, a few minutes before midnight, 
a retired police officer was out in his backyard in Kent, New York, when he observed a group of strange lights off to the south. They were colored red, green, and white. At, the fir at first, the former officer thought they belonged to a jet aircraft in trouble, but as the object passed over, he noticed that the height estimated to be only about 500 feet off the ground. He also noticed it was moving incredibly slowly and made no noise. I mean, some noise, it was a light mmm, but otherwise it was entirely silent. And when it came, it came closer to him and floated overhead, and he determined that these three lights were connected by a big triangular dark fuselage type deal. What the former officer had seen would be observed many times in the Hudson Valley o area over the next few years by hundreds of different witnesses, a V-shaped set of multicolored lights moving slowly and silently across the sky. On March 26, 1983, a front-page story in the Westchester Rockland Daily item proclaimed hundreds claimed to have seen a UFO. Now, I'm not going to be doing a ton of reading for this one because... Uh, I've read a lot about it, and it's kind of a simple story that we could talk about. After this article comes out, a group of UFO researchers led by none other than Dr. J. Allen Hynek, um, who is basically the, uh, I don't know, would you describe him as like the Fergie of UFOlogy, maybe? The Fergie. <laughs> I think that's an exactly accurate description, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Fergie of UFO studies... Um, and founder of the Center for UFO Studies, came down and decided he wanted to check this out. And he actually wound up writing a book about it called The Hudson Valley UFO Sightings by uh, Dr. J. Allen Hynek and Philip J. Imbrogno with the help of Bob Pratt. The group opened up a UFO hotline and received over 300 calls from people that had seen the UFO on the night of March 24th alone. One witness cited in the book reported that it had moved up the Taconic Parkway in sort of a Z-shaped pattern. He described the object as being triangular in shape with 30 or 40 colored lights along the back edge. The object, he stated, was huge. If there was a flying city this was a flying city. Whoa, that sounds so fucking cool. <laughs> the object apparently cruised over the community of Yorktown that evening, too, where the police switchboard became so jammed that police thought they were going to have trouble, like, answering actual emergency calls. So many, so many people were calling about this UFO that they thought they were going to miss something important. On the... On the Taconic, people were pulling over to get out of their cars and just stare up into the sky... Uh, at this giant triangle. UFO researchers estimated that over 5,000 people saw this UFO between the years of 1983 and 1986. The UFO seemed to glide over large areas, causing dozens of sightings in one night was, and would zip away. It was never once spotted during the day. And my, fav my favorite thing about the Hudson Valley Triangle is that if you look up another phenomenon called the Phoenix Lights, they are both incredibly similar. It is a big triangle that seems to hover over cities and then zip out of sight. And there's another really interesting part to this that a couple people have uh, spoken to. Uh, there was an interview with somebody who saw this UFO 
who said um, they got kind of a funny feeling in their head when they saw it. They felt kind of scared and interested. But the longer they looked at it, the more curious they got. And they started to think, you know, I kind of want to see that more. And as they thought that, the shape moved closer to them. This brings up the idea that aliens may not be entirely physical beings from other planets in our world, which is an idea that I have recently become very interested with. Some people actually believe in a thing called M&M technology. This is something you'll hear Henry Zabrowski talk about quite a bit, but it's basically called mind and machine technology. Uh, not basically, it's called mind and machine technology. And what that means is that aliens could be residing on the other side of space, on another planet not too far away, or they could be residing in another dimension entirely. And they are determining whether or not they want to come see us or if they want us to see them. And part of what they're doing to sort of get us acclimated to them is projecting images of their technology and their people into our minds. I like that. That is the thought behind M&M technology, is that the physical things that we see are not physical things at all. They are projections from another race that want us to see them. That's my favorite theory about aliens, honestly. I think it's very, very cool. I think it lends itself to a lot of other theories about the universe that I have somewhat, um, such a such as the world being a simulation you know why <laughs> there's a real okay i really 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 want that to be real because i really 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 want aliens to be real and not because i think it'd be really fun to have aliens around but like if there are no aliens in the universe we're probably gonna die you know like oh, yeah, if, 100%. if no other species has made it we're not gonna fucking make it and i like the idea that humanity will like live on and do cool things and travel the galaxy but we're not going to be the first but we're gonna we're we gonna need some, some help, help but we're also the chance of us being the first ones is very unlikely we've only been around for like a couple hundred thousand years well that's about everything i have on the hudson valley lights so let me give you one one last thing it's gonna take no time at all because there's actually no substantiated stories about this pretty much so let me tell you about Kipsy. You know who Kipsy is? Who's Kipsy? Kipsy is an aquatic monster who lives in the Hudson River who was first spotted in 1610. Hell yeah. Yeah. That's right when they got here. In, eight, <laughs> in 1899, an article appeared titled, Shark or Sea Serpent. I said that weird. Shark or Sea Serpent. Bathers in the Hudson River startled by a monster that chased them out of the water. Now... There's two things I want to point out about this. If you swim in the Hudson River, you will get a disease that has not been found yet. <laughs> on the, that's on the short list of things to absolutely not do ever. And the second thing that I want to say about this article is that the monster that chased them out was a manatee. <laughs> <laughs> it was very... It was most definitely a manatee. And pretty much every other sighting of Kipsy was later <laughs> confirmed to be a manatee. <laughs> People would see like shapes in the water and really quick be like, Oh my god, look! And then <laughs> some somebody would just be like, No, it's a sea cow. 
<laughs> Every single time. That's there were, so maybe, funny. Maybe it could have been a shark once or twice. A very large fish. But most of the time, it was a manatee. Like the most harmless. <laughs> Literally one of the most peaceful animals <laughs> that might not exist very soon. Is that true? <laughs> Are we about to lose manatees? Well... Here's the thing. When you and I were in elementary school, I remember somebody coming to Graflin and giving a uh, assembly about a children's book they wrote about manatee conservation. But now that I think about it, they taught us a lot of stupid shit in elementary school. Did you learn about the Iditarod like every fucking year like I did? Every why year. The fuck? We followed why, the Iditarod. Why? why? <laughs> Dude. We dedicated like an hour and a half a day to the fucking Iditarod. I thought it was a big deal. No, it's not. I th- it's just so. I thought the Iditarod. It's some weird bullshit that our school district was just like, you know what? Our kids are gonna want to know this. Yeah. No, we like followed the followed the racers and everything. We I think we placed some sort of weird bets on them. I don't know how many times I've like referenced the Iditarod in conversation, and people were just like, "What? Yeah, yeah." Because my elementary school made me a weird fucking nerd who knows a lot about the idea. <laughs> I mean, it was very important in our lives at the time. Like, <laughs> my grades literally depended on it. It literally, it went like the Civil War and then the Iditarod. We learned more about the Iditarod than we learned about the Civil War. Easily. And I, I'm not, yeah, I'm 100% confident in saying that. Okay, if I had ended my education at Roaring Brook Elementary School in Chappaqua, <laughs> New York. I would have walked away knowing that we were very friendly with the Indians. <laughs> and the Iditarod is of utmost importance. That is the the dark and morbid, or some of the dark and morbid history of the Hudson Valley. I was going to call this Haunted Hudson Valley and that did nothing about Haunted. <laughs> haunted Hudson Valley. I just Valley. realized that. You could just, uh, something about the Irish and then a nod to Schroffening. Plenty, plenty of good, uh, haunted shit up here, though. Uh, yeah, Lindhurst Manor, uh, is one. Sleepy Hollow is right nearby. We could do a whole episode on that whenever. I don't know, we could continue with hot, like, I don't know, let's see if people listen to this and then we could continue with, uh, the Hudson Valley next, next week. Yeah, possibly. Well, I think that could be it for us. I'm going to wrap this up. Thank you for listening to Radio Undead. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Follow us on Instagram at Radio underscore Undead. You can like us on Facebook. Just uh, look us up and keep an eye out for our cover art. Anything you want to plug, Jackson? Uh, no. All right, cool. Uh, again, we we are from you. we are starting to go weekly at this point. We're going to be alternating between the regular episodes and these episodes of Talking Undead, uh, just to sort of branch out and get some more interaction going. I think we are hoping to start doing some Twitch streams at some point too. Yeah. Uh, playing so. some video games. I want to play some Resident Evil Two for you guys. <laughs> Because uh, having people watch me will motivate me to get through it. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening to Radio Undead. We'll catch you next time. Bye, guys. Love you. <laughs>